It is my great joy to introduce to you the three musketeers hailing from the land of remote work. We have Marissa, career coach and queen of all. We have Jeff, our sassy SEO shaman. And we have Diego, who has spent his 20s building a community of remote working lunatics. Sure, these folks are going to be the people that will get you beach commute ready. And they'll do it in the most exciting way possible. So, happy listening. Welcome, everybody, to the Digital Nomad Experts podcast brought to you by Beach Commute. You've got Jeff and Marissa today. Marissa, how you doing? I am good. How are you? I'm good. Just got into, yeah, we got to do a location check. I just got into Cape Town last night, first time. And yeah, sitting in my apartment and I've barely seen anything because I had to go get an adapter and go straight to work. So you asked me earlier, how's my visit to Cape Town going? I have no idea. I've been working. (laughs) You landed, jumped right into work. You did everything we said people shouldn't do, which is like land at midnight the night before you have to work and then work the next day because you didn't have an adapter. You needed some things. But you're an expert nomad, so you've got it figured out, Jeff. You can do it. <laughs> got it all worked but out. But I'm so excited to see what you think of Cape Town. Yep, everybody will get a, a full review coming up. And you just got back from Costa Rica. How was that? I did. It was so amazing. It's one of my favorite places. I just had the best time. I love I love the, the beach vibes and the people in Costa Rica. And it was just a really amazing time. I was there with... Some friends who, some non-nomad friends actually came to visit, which was really fun. And I'm headed next to Playa del Carmen. I just decided I booked a flight like a week in advance as as we do in nomad life. And we'll talk about more. I decided to go pretty last minute, but I'll be there for at least a month, probably a little bit more. And I'm super excited to go back. And dancing. Yes. Yes, I booked. This is why it's fun to be a digital nomad. I've recently become obsessed with it's a style of dance called Brazilian Zouk. Not many people know about it. It's kind of like salsa meets hip hop, but it's like really sensual and fun. It's a it's I don't know. I I newly love it. And I I was talking to someone back home who said there was this like month long training for it. It's like a a big festival at the end that it culminates in in Playa del Carmen and good friend there who has been trying to get me to come meet him there for a while and that's the point of nomad life i was like when else can i just go dance for a month and learn this thing in a place that i love by the beach yes so that's where i'll be going next that is it that's why you take one-way flights everywhere and that's why we do what we do i ended up in barcelona just by chance and then i was like well it's an easy flight down to Cape Town, so now I'm in Cape Town. Went to three continents in one month, <laughs> month and a half. So. Love it. Yeah, love it. And this is your it. first time on the continent of Africa, is that right? First time. First time on the continent yes. of Africa. Yeah. I'm so excited for you to, to share what you think about everything, but we'll, we'll get there next. And I guess for now... Should we jump on in? Yeah, for now, this week's episode, we're going to talk about the seven reasons why being a digital nomad isn't for you, right? So a little bit a little bit controversial. Some people will probably click on that and go, well, hey, this is for me. But there's a reason why we came up with this list. And this list came out of things that we've actually heard people say. And we want to straighten that out. 
We want to go through each of these reasons why people say that they shouldn't be a digital nomad and explain why it's a ridiculous reason. <laughs> and we're going to use <laughs> we're going to use as much of our knowledge as as we've got to explain that and we're yeah. going to give you some as many as many as we can as many specific examples of of how you can make these things not be a problem for you. Does that about cover it, Marissa? Yeah, I think so. This one came out of a recent conversation I actually had with someone while I was in Costa Rica who was giving me all the excuses why they they couldn't really do the full digital nomad life. And I always say, with full compassion, right, I didn't get into an argument with this person. I just wasn't in the mood. But I say it with love is that, you know, there's always reasons why you shouldn't, can't do something, right? And we're guessing you've probably heard or may, I say made up, some of these excuses, and I, I will call them excuses, are going to sound really, really relevant to you and really prominent in your life. And you're going to be like, I really can't do it because of these things. And we just want to explain, it, it's like you you can do these, that you can be a digital nomad even in spite of these things. They are obstacles, but we don't want to let it stop you. So this, again, came out of a real conversation where there's always people who are going to say, I can't do X, Y, or Z. And you're listening because we know that you can. So I'm really passionate about the first one. I want your opinion first, Jeff, and then I have, I've got some things to say. But number one is that maybe you don't speak the language in the country or a country that you'd be excited to go to. So you can't go live there, you know, for extended time. You don't, you're not going to be able to communicate with the locals. It's going to be hard to get around, whatever it is that you might be thinking. So Jeff, what's your first thought on this one? Well, I think it's a it's a terrible excuse. It really is, and and a lot okay, of times with it, compassion, Jeff, with compassion, <laughs> <laughs> with compassion, a, a lot of times, right? With compassion, a lot of times, <laughs> where that stems from is a lack of confidence in speaking another language. Right, so people are afraid to not be good at the language, so they won't use it at all. A lot of the people that I know that that refuse to speak Spanish, like actually do know some Spanish, but they're so scared of being wrong and they're afraid of of being embarrassed that they're not speaking very well, that they just won't do it at all. And that's like, you're never going to get anywhere. You really have to go through that, that kind of awkward phase of just trying. And, and re and really when you talk to a lot of the locals, especially as I've traveled through so much of Central and South America, they just want you to try, right? And a lot of times yeah. you'll be able to communicate in a way where they will they will understand you. It's just not going to be as clean and perfect as you want it to be. But there are, aside from just trying, if say you know absolutely nothing, right? You know absolutely nothing about right. the language. Right, as I say, there's some languages where you really might not know anything. Right. So what do you do in those situations, Marissa, where you ended up in Czech Republic or Prague or Bulgaria? <laughs> and there's like, yes, we assuming you didn't know a whole, you didn't know a whole <laughs> I lot. I do not know Bulgarian. That was a hard one. The sure. language, I was like, I can't even read this. I can't pronounce anything. I can't understand anyone. Yeah. So for those, like, again, you might know a little bit of Spanish or French or something like that, right? But let's say you literally don't know any part of the language. Honestly, I actually want to give another reason why people feel bad about this. I have a lot of coaching clients and a lot of travel friends who, I guess there's sort of two reasons people, let's say it's Bulgaria or Thailand or wherever you are, that you really don't know any part of the language. One is the fear that you can't, you won't logistically be able to get around, right? You're like, I don't know how to 
order food. I don't know how to get a taxi. I don't know how to, you know, read the language to get on the right bus. Like, it's logistically harder, right? To that, it's like, we'll, we'll get into that. You just know that it's going to be a struggle, and that's kind of the fun of it, and that's kind of why you push yourself and travel, in my opinion, but you can do it. The second part of that, which this was never something I ever felt, so I was really surprised, but a lot of my clients have told me, is that they feel really guilty that they don't know the language. So this is going to come probably from more of an American point of view just for this moment. But if you think about Europeans, like we have, you know, Diego speaks five different languages. A lot of our European friends speak like two, three, four, five, six, seven different languages. And, you know, they they really can adapt in a better way. But a lot of people as Americans, because so many people around the world, you know, are, have been forced to speak and learn English, we'll kind of go assuming that people will accommodate us, assuming that like, okay, I speak English, that's enough. And some people are fine with that. But weirdly, I've had a ton of clients who feel so guilty about that. And so they won't go to a different country where they know nothing because they feel like they're just, I don't know, like it, that they haven't, they feel bad not having taken the time to learn a whole language first. So anyway, for whatever the reason might be, I would say don't let that stop you. Like I've been to 75 different countries. I don't know how many languages have been spoken. Call it like probably 40 different languages across, you know, there's like tons of different local dialects that I could never, ever, even if I wanted to, you know, learn all of those languages. And so you don't want that to stop you from going places. So I would say, you know, in every country that I go to, I try to learn at the very least how to say, you know, hello and thank you. (laughs) That goes a long way. Body language, smiling, being a warm, happy person, even if you don't speak the language, goes a long way. If you're listening to this podcast, you speak English, so English does, you know, luckily, thankfully, gratefully go a long way, but I would say it's kind of like just don't don't feel guilty. Do your best to still learn from the cultures and don't worry, you know, logistically, it's going to be a challenge, but you can figure it out. Any thoughts, Jeff, on just like a, a quick piece of advice for someone who's like scared of the logistics of it? If they don't speak the language, maybe like the letters aren't even the same. Like how do you get around if you don't speak or know anything, what are some of your tips? If I know nothing, I'm just going to hop on Duolingo for a week before I go. Just you, there's a few mm. people assume that you're you going like to need to learn a little bit of the language. Yeah, just a little bit. People assume that you're going to need a lot more than you're going to. And like you said, you're going to get by with English in lots and lots and lots of places. But it helps to know some of the basics, like hello, goodbye, how to order. Order, how to order food, mm-hmm. how to ask directions, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You can get the basics in a week of just about any language. Just like pick out 10 phrases or something. Duolingo is mm. pretty helpful for that. It's not going to be helpful conversationally. Like you're not going to be able no. to, you're not going to be able to have conversations, but you're going to be able to do the things that you need to do with that. And yeah. also with Google Translate, it helps as well too, because it also has a speak translate function. So you can speak into it in English. And it'll translate it into a different language for you. And you get the little robot voice that comes out. And then also Google Translate also has the picture taking feature where it'll take a picture of a menu or any type of text and it'll translate it into English for you or whatever language you want. So there, there's tools available at your disposal, definitely. And it's just kind of just fumble your way through it and you're, you're going to be fine. I think you said you've been to how many? 75 different countries? haven't have run into any issues yet where you weren't able to do what you well, needed to do. I'm sure it was some certain times yeah. where it was like and not some, the most like, comfortable, but 
Yeah. There's, you know, Google Translate where you can pull, you can speak into the phone. It translates like that's a lifesaver. I remember in Serbia once I had a flat tire and had to like ask for directions about tires and planning. And I was having the whole conversation on my phone and then I'd send in text and they'd write back in their text and you go back and forth. So sure, it's it's not easy, it, but that's sort of like the fun of travel. So that is number one. All right, Jeff. So number two that a lot of people say is it's just too expensive. Being a digital nomad is not for me because I just can't afford it. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, it, it can be too expensive if you go to the wrong place. <laughs> I like like anything. Like like a vacation can be too right. expensive if you you know want to spend the entire time in Paris or if you want to go to like some of the more expensive places in the world for sure. But generally, that's that's kind of not like how we digital nomad. I mean, if, when you think about where you've gone, out of the places that you've chosen, what is it, maybe like 5%, 10% are relatively expensive compared to what you used to? Yeah. Yeah, if, if that. Yeah, that's fair. And I guess it really depends on your living expenses at home, but there's a different budget for everybody. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that it's going to be as expensive as vacation. So typically, if you go on, you know, let's say you're not a digital nomad and you go on a vacation, you're probably flying around a holiday because you get more time off with work. You're probably flying on certain, you know, weekends or times when flights are more expensive and you have to go in a certain time and you're going to a certain place. So flights are expensive. You're going to be paying, this isn't everyone, but let's say likely, you know, you're going to pay for a hotel. You're probably going to eat all your meals out. You're going to do a bunch of big things. And so, you know, people can end up spending thousands of dollars in a, you know, four or five days or a week and assume it's going to be that, you know, times four weeks, you know, each month. And that's going to be your budget as a nomad. And it's really not the case. So think about it just as living like you would at home, but probably, depend, you know, depending on where you're from and what city you live in, it's oftentimes less expensive. So even with the travel, let's say you book a big flight somewhere, you can find a good deal. You can go to a country where the flight is good. You can get great discounts when you stay somewhere for you know three weeks to a month on Airbnb. And then you're not going to be eating out of big fancy meals every day. I mean, maybe you are if that's your budget and, and you want to and you're a foodie, but you go to the grocery store and you cook at home and you do local things. And to me, it usually I usually end up spending less per month than I would living in the States. But again, it really depends where you go. You know, I'm going to go to Japan later this year, and that will be a more expensive month, and I know that. But otherwise, I might live in Mexico or Indonesia or places where it, it really is, you know, spending so much less per month on rent. So any other thoughts there? Yeah, go. part of being a digital nomad is kind of carving out a uh, set of destinations that you want to go to. And we've had podcasts on how to choose your first digital nomad destinations. That's one of the top considerations before you even go is take a look at what what is the cost of living comparison there. So two yeah. major considerations. The first one is always accommodations. You know, how, how much does it cost to actually rent an Airbnb or go on booking.com or hotels.com and find a place to live in? And then second thing is what is your day-to-day expenses going to look like? So what mm-hmm. does it cost to go shopping? What does it cost to, like you said, if you're a foodie, if that's part of the experience that you want, is it going to cost a lot of money to eat out at restaurants? And a lot of the times, yeah, digital nomad destinations they tend to be places with fairly decent exchange rate. It's just kind of the way 
that's just kind of the way it is, save for a few spots, which people generally what happens is they just budget ahead. Like you're going to Japan and you're mentally budgeting ahead. Okay. This one's going to be a little bit, right. this one's going to be a little bit, put a little bit more of a dent <laughs> in the wallet. Whereas some other places you yep. don't even have to think yep. about it. And like you said, yeah, a lot of times it is, it is cheaper to live in a lot of places. When I moved to Medellin, my cost of living drops just because groceries at home are now $12 a dozen eggs. Whereas like, that's not what, <laughs> that's not what you end up paying in a lot of these places. Um, yeah, that's a great spot. And just to, to wrap it there, there's such a range of a budget, right? I, I'm part of a, a zillion digital nomad Facebook groups just to kind of keep a tab on things. And there's so many people who are like, I'm a, you know, a single mother with two kids and my budget is $2,000 a month. Where can I live? And, you know, people write and there's like a hundred recommendations there. So you can do that. Or we have friends who make great money and you might have a great salary and you might want to spend $8,000 a month on your accommodations and food and trips and excursions, but it's really up to you. So that just, that said, it's it's like, I guess my, my overall takeaway is don't think about this as a vacation budget. And oftentimes like maybe you can rent out your place at home or you're not double paying, like really leave and go live somewhere and it, it really is less expensive and sometimes more affordable. So that kind of knocks that one off. Yeah, that's pretty good for that one. Okay, Marissa, what is the third reason to not be a digital nomad on the list? <laughs> yeah, so many people say, well, I just can't work in different time zones, right? Maybe if you're in the States or somewhere where you are, you're like, well, I could just go you know, within these, this hour or just in North America, or if you're already living in Europe, just in these time zones. But there really is more flexibility. So obviously it's easier if you are working for, let's say you're working Eastern time zone, let's say it's like the New York time zone to kind of stay in Central South America. But we have a lot of friends who are working those specific hours who have chosen to live in Europe all summer, for example. And you might work 2 or 3 p.m. till 10 or 11 p.m. And while this can get hard, I think if you do this day in and day out for your whole life, sometimes for a month or a few months, it's actually really enjoyable. If you're, well, Jeff, you're not a morning person, so it's hard, <laughs> maybe harder for you. But for me and, and some other people, it's nice to kind of have a slow morning. You wake up a little bit later, you might go to the gym, and then you kind of have your days to explore a new place where you're living in a way that you wouldn't have you know, if you're just on the same time zone where you're, you know, at your computer nine to five during the daylight hours. So I was speaking to someone recently who I met and they, you know, they were telling me, they're like, oh, I want to go to Europe so bad, but <clears throat> sorry, but they were working US time zone and they're like, I can't, you know, I can't get over there. And I think cancer is just an excuse. It depends on, you know, how badly do you want it? Do you want to make it work? And, and is that, but you spend a lot of time and you're up in other places while you actually did have to work certain hours. So what was your experience like, Jeff? I definitely was one of those people I thought, this is not going to be for me because I'm, <laughs> I I am a morning person and I was really, really limited to those North American working hours, East Coast in, uh, to yeah. be specific. So that meant when I was in Eastern Europe that was working, what was that, like three, I think it was three to three to 11, something like that. And I thought, oh God, I'm yeah. such a bad You've all heard it on our <laughs> podcasts. Like it's just a <laughs> diminishing returns graph of my productivity and my and how well my brain is working throughout the day. It just goes down. It just shoots down a hill in the afternoon. And I thought this was just not going to work for me. With you know picking up so late in the day, but everything that you said was totally true. I had this just total change in the way that I approached the day. 
And I just kind of eased into it a lot more than I do typically when I'm working morning hours where mm-hmm. I'm up at six, like the cold shower, all that, all that stuff that's just like terrible that most people hate. <laughs> I just stopped doing that and I've kind of eased into the morning and I spent my day walking around the city, exploring, enjoying a coffee somewhere. And I spent like all of my, as a complete change, all of my like strong mental hours where my brain is really firing, doing stuff that I really, really wanted to do as like almost like a tourist. And then I spent the rest of my time just kind of easing through the day um, doing work. So yeah, it was actually really, really doable. And the only thing, the only difference between that and normal work day is I didn't have like the five hours of winding down after work that everybody thinks they need. Like, oh, I need my five hours to to watch Netflix or to read and all that. It's like, no, not really. I just kind of shut down the computer and then I was done. I was like, okay, now I just go to bed. So yeah. there's just... There's just not a whole yeah. big unwind period, but it was shockingly yeah. doable. The only thing... And if that's for you, uh-huh. that says it's, a lot because you are... Like for me, I like to work those hours anyway, yeah. but you are like a 6 a.m. worker. But sorry, what were you going to say? The hard part um, was for you? I was going to say that the only thing that I, I can't speak to is having worked nights, right? So if I was in Asia, like Australia... Overnight. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't worked... You know, that like starting at 8 p.m. type thing. And I know some folks are doing that. Our friend Colette, who's going to be on the podcast tomorrow, is going to talk to me about working from 6 till 3 in the morning, which I don't... That probably makes it a little bit more limited for some people, but she's still really enjoying herself. We went out and she's like, yeah, wake up at 1030, wow. go out, get coffee. And it's it's just like matches with her, with her schedule. So I've seen it happen. I've... I can't wait to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd I'd love to hear about what she's yeah. doing to maintain her productivity because she's she's not just like yeah, a mouse mover. That gets hard. She's not just a mouse mover. She's actually <laughs> she's like selling at three in the morning. So she's just engaged, and that just blows me away. Yeah, that gets rough. I remember I was living in Thailand once with Diego. This was probably five or six years ago, and we had someone who. He actually hadn't told his company that he was in Asia. They thought he was in Portland and Big, or like somewhere in, in somewhere in Oregon in Oregon. And he would work from I think it was like midnight till like seven thirty AM in Thailand. And it was real I mean, you can do that for a little bit. I wouldn't necessarily suggest that unless you're like dying to get to a place and you just want to do it, but that really takes a toll on your body. But overall, I think even if you do just, you know, let's say you're in Eastern time zone or, you know, somewhere in the States, there's you, you for years would just explore Central South America. So I would say like, even if you're not ready to work different hours or do a different time zone, don't let that stop you because there's so much to explore just within, you know, the time zones, whether you're in Europe or, or, you know, Asia or wherever you are, explore some, I would say, One last thing for this, one of the hard things that I think is easier when you have a lot of digital nomad friends, but a lot of people don't always necessarily travel with us with like a million digital nomads and and like to just go live in a, you know, in a city or any country and meet, you know, local people. And I will say if you're working those night hours, it can be hard because dinner is a really social time to meet up with people and do things and hang out with friends. And if you're working all of those hours, you, it's hard to miss out on that. But if you're like us and you travel with other digital nomads, likely you'll you'll just get to co-work with people or have people around or like you explore during the day together. So that is something to be mindful of if you're more of a, I want to meet local people and, and have a real local experience. But I mean, you can do that on the weekends Great as well, point. but that is something that does get hard. Yeah. yeah. All right. Should we move on to number yeah, four? Yeah. Yeah. What have you All got? Right, so number four, a lot of people are saying digital nomad life is not for me because it's 
it's just, it's not safe to travel. I'm too scared to go to these places. What if I travel, you know, by myself? How am I going to figure it out? I'm going to shoot this to you to start and then I'm happy to add it. Yeah, it's it's a totally fair fear. And it's always, people get that even when they go on vacations. Anywhere that they don't know, they're going to think that it's it's less safe. And it might be less safe than home because you really don't know the area. You don't know the areas to to avoid in a specific city. You have no idea what to expect. You might not speak the language. So it really, really is a valid concern. It's, it's also one that we can we can probably write off pretty easily because it's it is just different. It's not inherently more dangerous to be a digital nomad. It's just a different city in it. And just like your hometown city, what you want to do is get a feel for where's where are the good areas and where are the bad areas. And that's what I've I've traveled quite a few places and quite a few places that were not typically known as safe. And still, the only places that I've actually ever run into any possible physical threat was in the states a few times like in a couple a couple of my hometowns yeah a couple yeah. different hometowns that I lived in I I had some a few altercations that were pretty scary but I've still never I've had a few moments that felt a little unsafe and it's probably because I chose the wrong place to walk alone at night just just <laughs> stupid learning type of stuff but like I t- right. tell people it's this really is not a matter of digital nomad life being unsafe. It's a matter of doing your homework before you go somewhere yeah. and just making sure that you're you're smart and like you should be. It's just kind of a common sense thing. What do you have to add to that, Marissa? Yeah, I was going to say when I coach clients, whether it's about safety or just anything in your life, like you have an existing comfort zone. And I like to think about it almost like a target with like the circles kind of expanding, right? So instead of jumping, if you're like at the center of your little target of your comfort zone, instead of jumping all the way like five rings to the outside of your first trip, I always tell people to start small. So when I think about myself, when I first, this was really even before I started fully nomading, I took a sabbatical from work for two months and I was traveling all over. I went to like Israel and Greece and and Turkey and I had some friends meet me in these places, but I was going to spend a couple days. This is it's so funny looking back on this. I was going to go to a couple places in Turkey alone before heading back to the States to meet back up with my boyfriend or before heading somewhere else, I think, to meet him. And I got too scared. I was like, I'm not ready. I I really was like too scared to go to these places alone. And it's funny to see that now because it was just a really foreign place to me at the time. And it just, there was some stuff going on in Central Turkey. Like it wasn't necessarily the safest place. But I think about that now and I would go there in the heartbeat. Like I've traveled, you know, solo through the Middle East and places. It doesn't scare me now, but it was too scary for me back then many years ago. So thinking about that, like go to somewhere where you feel safe, where it sounds safe, where you feel comfortable and like just do a little test and then keep like little by little, like the next place is going to feel a little safer, a little safer. You're going to get more used to it. You're going to get the feel of, okay, here's what happens when I land. Here's how I get my bearings. Here's how I do this. So if if that's one of your top fears, I say like, just go a little bit outside your comfort zone. Maybe start like in a different city where you don't know anyone in your own country or like your neighboring country or, you know, just go small from there. So that's that's my biggest advice. And I think we also have a whole, do we do a whole episode on safety tips, Jeff? Did I make that up? No, we've got a, we yeah, we a do have ago. a podcast on that. We'll have to yeah, check to see so what number that is. Yeah, we do. we'll... We'll link that. We'll find the number. But check that out if you want some tips from us on how to feel safe, how to be safe. I, I think I share a lot of tips in there as you know, from a female traveler point of view, as well as just Jeff and I riffing on safety, you know, ways in general. But if this is your fear, like 
certainly don't let it hold you back, but do take little steps and like just outside your comfort zone, just outside your comfort zone until you're like, now my comfort zone is so stretched from what it was before. It's, it's wild to see. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. What is the next one on the list for me? All right. Number five, Jeff, it's just like the logistics are too hard. So this one, I see a lot of people say like, I can't be a nomad because I've got a lease for another year. I bought this house. I have all this furniture. I have a pet. What else? Just like those, you know, I have all this stuff. What am I going to do with it? It's going to, you know, just the sort of like logistics really of your, of your stuff and your home and your place. So thoughts on this one because it really holds a lot of people back. Yeah. it And there's so many different logistical considerations per, <laughs> per each person, but in in reality, it's just like anything else. It's kind of laying them, writing them all down. This is what I did. And just like doing mm. one thing at a time. It feels like so much. And when okay. so when somebody says that to you, they say logistics won't work. That's just this big, scary bucket, this big, scary can of worms <laughs> that they're just like, where do I even start? Which one of these logistics can I? It, it just seems overwhelmingly too much, right? But in reality, yeah. like what you do is just take out one thing at a time. And the way I started was, okay, I'm just going to go on one Wi-Fi tribe chapter, see how that goes. I'll just make it work for one. And I had the dog. Yeah. And I was like, okay, mom, watch my dog. And left for a month and then came back and said, okay, how do I start to And you left all your stuff, stuff in your home and your apartment, like at this time, right? Yeah. 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 Left all my stuff. Like you left all your clothes, your furniture, everything. Uh-huh. You sort of double paid that month just to check it out. I, I paid yeah. okay. I paid that month. And yeah, I had no long-term plans for how I was going to get the dog situation sorted out to do this more at scale. <laughs> but I, I wasn't looking for scale just yet. Just kind of like doing one thing at a time. I was like, okay, first impediment yeah. is the dog. So worked out a system where I pay my brother and his girlfriend to watch my dog. Okay, boom, got that. The furniture problem. Okay, sold off the majority of that and put a lot of it, a lot of stuff in storage. Okay, boom, that's another thing on the list. And you just keep going one by one by one until you get to a point where it's like a little bit scalable for you and it's not quite so intense, right? And just getting back to the time zone thing, that was a logistical problem for me. That was like a work logistics problem. And then it was like, okay, let's go to Eastern time. Let's just do three hours. And I did three hours. It's like, oh, wow, that is super doable. So then it was Barcelona. Let's go plus six hours. And it's like, oh, okay, this is also doable. All right, now let's just go full out and like South Africa, Romania, just like, and then it's just like little tiny bits until you get to a point where it's like, all right, the whole thing is now scalable. That's how I did it. But there's there's a lot. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you have, what your impressions are in coaching from a coaching standpoint, because there's so many different yeah. ways and mindsets to take in order to approach this issue. Jeff, I think you made a lot of great points there of just saying like, instead of feeling this big, heavy blanket of it's, it's just everything feels hard, really break it down into these smaller things. And I tell this people with coaching with any part of our lives of, of anything that's hard to do, we, we often just feel like it's this heavy thing. And we don't even know what the hard things are. And you realize that the solutions are a lot easier than you might think, or at least solvable. That said, I will say this is probably one of the most annoying and hardest parts of nomad life for me still, for so many of our friends. Like I'm, I'm actually back in the States for a couple of days. I was, I was home for a little bit earlier, or I guess last year now, and I'm about to go for probably another, you know, six months or so. And I have a condo and it's such a pain. It never gets easier to like move my clothes and put it back in storage 
fridge or, you know, I might store some stuff at my parents' house or in a storage unit. But when I first got started, and I've shared this before, so if you've listened to a bunch, you may have heard this, but so so Jeff did a one-month trial. I did a four-month trial, and I had a condo and a cat. And basically, I moved out all of my clothing, all of my pictures, like anything sort of personal, but I kept all the big furniture there. And I sort of, illegal, I wasn't really allowed to rent out my, my condo, but I sort of did it under the table. And I had someone stay for four months. So I knew I was leaving in September, and I had a wedding on New Year's Eve that I was coming back for. And I had the person who rented out my condo, ba- like paid me and babysat my cat. And then I got to leave all my big couch and furniture and all of that. And I did it as a test because I, like you, I was like, I'm going to do this and I might love it or I might do it for four months and say, that was cool. Now I'm done and I want my place back. So really you have to do what's right for you. Maybe you want to rent it out. Maybe you rent it out to a friend. Maybe you put everything in storage because you know you want to go for a whole year and you wait, you know, some people wait till their lease ends, some people break their lease. But I will say this is the one that gets the the most like number of excuses. When I talk to people, they're like, yes, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to wait, you know, I have to wait eight months until my lease is up or it really can't work for the next two years or whatever it is. So be mindful if you're making excuses and know that there's always a way to do it. And factually, this part just kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> it, it never gets fun. It is anno- It is an annoying and hard part of nomad life, but it is so, so, so worth it, is, is what I'll say, to have the travel experiences that you yeah. will. It just, I, I guess the, the parting note that I would say is just make a list of the things that you think are holding you back, and then just come up with solutions for each one of those things. If it's the pet thing, can yeah. I get... Can I get a family member to watch it? Or can I use trusted house sitters to get somebody to watch my... And then just go down the list and see if there's any blockers. And if you run into some blockers, shoot us a note. We might have some sort of solution or we might have something that we've coached or advised people on in the past. Yeah. And don't let the annoying logistics hold you back. Like it is annoying to move your furniture. It Uh, is annoying to pack up your stuff. Some of this just sucks. Choose your stuff. It sucks. (laughs) It just, yeah. Not everything about Nomad Life is like perfectly easy, whatever, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's so worth it in the end. So that's number five. Number six is taxes are just too complicated or like my employer, I can't do this with taxes. They say I have to live in one place. Basically, there's there's a lot of tax misnomers that prevent people from traveling because they assume they can't do it with the work they're doing. So you were one who traveled while you had a full-time job. We'll talk a little bit more about taxes and it's different for everybody. But what's just sort of like the, the big picture to think about when someone thinks ta- like the tax implications might hold them back? Well, the only thing that I can just immediately comes to mind is I have never met anybody that's had any issues with taxes that's held them from being a digital nomad. <laughs> nothing, nothing. The only... And that's thousands of people. Consider- yeah. yeah, the only consideration that I ever run into or hear of from people is usually people that own their own business and, and where they want to incorporate if they want to do it abroad so they can for tax purposes and or people that are trying to file for the FEIE, which is the I can't I can remember what it stands for. Basically, if you if you stay out of the United States a certain number of days per year, I think it's like 330. Yeah, it's 330, I think. You get a tax exemption for a certain percentage of your income. But other than that, yeah, I've I've never heard of anybody having any special situation where they had to 
change anything in their taxes, let alone file something completely different. Have, have you run into anything like that? No, I think where this comes into play. So if I think about like back when I worked at Pepsi and I wanted to like move to a foreign country for your work for that company, you know, like literally move and almost become a resident of somewhere else for a year. It becomes really like there are tax implications if you are just trying to move somewhere else and say like, this is where I'm living. This is where I want to you know, be a resident and pay taxes. But if you are just traveling around as a nomad, and this is where, okay, this, this is the gray area for sure. So we are not tax advisors here. We are not trying to like talk about the law or anything like that, just sort of factually. Basically, you still have your home address. And if you're not living, let's say you let go of your home address, maybe you have a friend or a family member, or a PO box or something where you say like, you know, I'm from Georgia, like this is where I am still residing. You know, Jeff says, you know, he still has his home in California and that is his dress for tax purposes and, you know, for the company that you work in. So if you're working for a company, which is you know what we teach people to start, especially you still say that you live in that home city and state where, you know, where you've been. And then when you travel, as long as you're not staying somewhere for a year at a time or however long you're not allowed to be somewhere you know, before you become a resident and taxpayer, it's, it's just like you're traveling on vacation. You go and you say, I'm a tourist. I'm here for one month, for two months, for three months, depending on what the rules are, a couple of days, weeks, whatever. And it has zero tax implications as long as you're you know under this set amount of time and places for the company that you're working for. So as long as far as they're concerned, you're still just a tax resident, the same as you've always been. So I would say that's just sort of the big picture we could get in. We still need to have a tax, tax expert on here because there are implications. You know, I have friends and from Germany and from Israel who have decided to let their residents go. And like there's whole, you can save a bunch of money and do things in that way. But overall, I would say, you know, it, it, it can be confusing when you haven't done it before, but just go places, stay under the limit, say you're, you know, you go as a tourist and the taxes are just not an issue as long as you're not switching residencies for as far as we're concerned right yeah. now. We talked about this before in the, in the visas podcast where Almost, mm-hmm. almost a hundred percent of the time, you're wherever you're going to go, you're going to get a tourist stamp. You're not going to get a visa, and you're not going to get a. You're not going to tell them that you're there for business, which would have implications. If you're there for business, then you'd start paying local taxes and stuff. Right. But where you're going, you're almost always going to get that tourist stamp, which is going to be whatever it is based on your passport in that country. It could be 30 days, could be 90 days. But again, yeah, with that, you're looking at no tax implications. So you are in the clear. And if that's a fear, it really, really shouldn't be because we just we just don't (laughs) run into that as a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But talk to like a tax advisor if it, you know, if it scares you or it's hard. But if you're traveling the way we are and yeah, we did a whole episode on visas, so check that out. But I know people think a lot of, you know, there are year-long visas in a bunch of countries now that you can sort of get around it in ways like that, but you are paying some taxes or fees to have that nomad visa. So yeah, long story short, it can be confusing, but don't let it stop you. Look at the rules for where you want to go and start and just just get going and you'll see it's not a problem. <laughs> but yeah, so that wraps up number six. And then lastly, number seven is the healthcare system. This one, I feel like some people don't even rationally know this is their fear and then when I start talking to him and really get into it there's a big fear some people do know as well but there's a big fear on healthcare like you you know you know your insurance system at home but like what if something happens abroad what if you know how do you get healthcare how do you pay for it what if your insurance doesn't cover it it just really it's like the what if scenario like what if something terrible happens and how does how does that work so 
we've done a whole episode on this, but Jeff, I'll, I'll kick it over to you to kind of share. Briefly. I've got so much experience in this one. This is this is healthcare <laughs> do, maybe more than abroad <laughs> is my specialty. This week is a really good. We got a really good recent example that I can share with the audience just from this week. I was in Barcelona yeah. and I got a cold which developed into bronchitis. And then when I was starting to get over it, I got on a plane and then the air pressure in the cabin just being on such a long flight actually gave me an ear and sinus infection. So when I landed the next day, all of a sudden, my one ear, I couldn't even hear. It was like I was in, an, in half an, it was like in an aquarium. Like it was just completely plugged. And I thought, oh no, this is, this, <laughs> this is that point where it's like, okay, I, I can't just let this go. This is not the check engine light. I think I actually have to be an adult and go do something about it. So I just Googled doctors near me, went on a map, looked for reviews, found something that was within a decent walking distance. It ended up being like a 15, 20 minute walk. Went in there, talked to the doctor. It was 35 bucks plus whatever I had to get for antibiotics. And I was out the door with everything that I needed within about an hour at the entire thing. Diagnosis, ear infection, antibiotics in hand. And I was done in an hour. So it's at first I was, again, that fear comes up like, oh God, I'm sick in a new place and I don't know exactly what I'm doing. And this is going to be scary. Do I need insurance? How expensive is it going to be? But every single time this has happened, I've had something in Romania here. I had a brain MRI in Colombia. <laughs> and in every single case, it was doable. It was very, very fast. And it was much, much cheaper and less complicated than what I'm used to in the United States. So, and I've actually had work done in Colombia because it was cheaper and it's a good medical tourism place. So from my experience, yeah, sure. That's only three, three, four countries that I've, I've gone to a doctor, but every single experience was easier, cheaper, and faster than I've experienced in the United States. So that is just a disclaimer. You may not have the same experience, but you can absolutely get the care that you need while traveling abroad. And I think you might even be surprised at how good the care is going to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Go check out. We did a whole episode on healthcare specifically. I feel like it was a while back. Yeah, so maybe about half a year ago. Because Jeff and I started. Yeah, maybe even longer. It might have been a year ago. But Jeff and I shared a ton of like personal stories of all different countries and friends that we've had healthcare in. Um, but just to kind of give, so I won't go into that here, but to give a little extra tip here, when you travel, so you have, probably you have your healthcare, your insurance in your home country. And when you travel, there's there's a bunch of different companies that offer healthcare options for like health insurance for when you travel. We've interviewed someone from Safety Wing on the podcast. So that's one that a lot of us use, World Nomads, Aetna. Like there's, there's a bunch that you can just basically sign up for. And it has traveled. So at least for the US, and again, it will be different depending on what country you're in. For us, at least for my health insurance, if I'm out of the country for I think it maybe is more than 30 days, my US health insurance stops covering me. So basically, if you go on vacation, it still covers you. But once you're gone for a certain amount of time, you want to make sure you have that travel insurance, sorry, that, that that health insurance that works worldwide on top of it. So for me, it's usually about $45 a month. That can vary based on you know the coverage that you decide to get. And that for me is both travel and health insurance wrapped in one. That's about the price. So it's, you know, it's not that expensive, but it's worth it. It's good to have you just, you know, just in case you do run into anything and then you can submit claims the same way you would submit it in your hometown. So just know that that 
exist and as an option, we'll we'll try to link to something with show notes as well. But yeah, that's again not. It definitely is scary and it's different. And you know, we we send you love for all the fears, but it's totally doable. And as Jeff said, it's often you know I've also had that same experience of better, faster, cheaper, more convenient care than I ever 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 get in the states. So. Yeah, I guess that wraps up our seven, Jeff. What what are your kind of overall takeaways from this episode? It's that all of these are very, very valid concerns. And the people that raise them are legitimately scared about this. And they think that this life is not for them. But as we've gone through all of these, we can say for certain that every one of these things is not something that should hold you back from being additional that. There's, there's no reason that... Uh, any of these can't be sorted out. And if you do have something that didn't show up on our list, this is just based on what we're getting from feedback from yeah. from you guys. If there's something on the list that uh, you think we missed or something that's that's worrying you, shoot us a note at uh, hello at, at beachcommute.com and uh, we'll write you back and, and maybe we'll even make it into a podcast. Yeah, I love that. We've done a whole episode. Just if you are listening to this and you're like, they haven't addressed this concern of mine, or I have this big question that I really want the answer to, if it's if it's worth a an episode, we love to take your personal questions and and make episodes out of them because yeah, this, it's on your mind. We're here to help. So in addition to that, go to beachcommute.com backslash email if you want to get on our email list. Each week we send out two remote job postings that I personally source and find that you can do from anywhere in the world. We've got tons of people applying to these and really excited about them. So definitely check that out. I know it's a lot of people's favorite email. We'll send you an email, a new podcast episode so you don't miss out as well. Make sure you're getting the ones that you want to listen to. So that's beachcommute.com slash email. Anything else we're missing, Jeff? Nope, that's it. I think that's it for this week, Marissa. All right, we'll catch you next week. All right, we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye.